You're listening to the MomWell Podcast. Today, I am excited to welcome back my friend, Dr. Quincy Gideon, to the show. Dr. Quincy is a licensed psychologist who specializes in religious trauma and cult recovery, and she's joined us many times on the podcast before. She was here on episode 130, talking about how to heal from religious trauma. She also joined us back on episode 94, helping us learn how to regulate our nervous system. And before that, she was on episode 79, helping us understand when treatment in the medical system actually can become traumatic. And today, I have invited Dr. Quincy back to help us understand how we can make decisions with confidence. I had gathered with some friends and family over the holidays, and we were having a conversation about why we make the decisions that we do. Do we make them to make our parents proud? Do we make them because they're in line with our faith? Or do we make them because of our own critical thinking and tuning into our own values? The reality is that for many of us, we have not been taught the skill of how to make decisions for ourselves and how to trust in that decision that we've made. Many of us have been taught to be people pleasers, might describe ourselves as indecisive, and may struggle to make a decision with certainty and trust that we've made the right choice for ourselves. Dr. Quincy is here to help us unpack this today. And this conversation really gets into things like culture and religious upbringing, the norms of our home. There are so many things that shape our decision-making that go beyond surface level, and we really dive into those here today. I always love having Dr. Quincy here, and I know that you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Let's hear about decision-making with confidence with Dr. Quincy. You asked, we listened. MomWell is now expanding therapy support to the United States. At MomWell, we know that maternal mental health care matters. And we also know that moms are struggling to find quality, judgment-free providers. In fact, one in five women feel that they've been dismissed or ignored by a healthcare provider. It's time to change the way moms are treated. That's why we're determined to bring our therapy services to more moms than ever. Our qualified maternal mental health specialists are here to support moms across Canada and the United States. We support you in four major areas to ensure that we can meet the needs of as many families as possible. First, mom support. Motherhood has a way of bringing up our vulnerabilities, trauma, and mental health struggles. You shouldn't have to cope alone. Our mom counselors and postpartum therapists are ready to support you. We also offer partner support. After all, moms aren't the only ones who struggle after having a baby. As a non-birthing partner, you also go through a major life adjustment. A therapist can help support you through the transition into parenthood. Through our parenting support, we can help you tackle challenges such as breaking cycles, determining your parenting style, and parenting with confidence. Our team of qualified therapists offer specialized support for you and your family on your parenting journey. Our team also provides relationship support. Working with a therapist can help you process the changes and strains in your relationship, open up the lines of communication, develop boundary-setting skills, and work through resentment. Motherhood is hard, but care shouldn't be. Connect with one of our qualified maternal mental health specialists today. Find out if we serve your area and book a free 15-minute virtual consultation at momwell.com slash booking. That's momwell.com slash booking. Welcome to the MomWell Podcast, where we're committed to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host, registered psychotherapist and founder of MomWell, Erica Jossa. 
At MomWell, we know that motherhood is hard, but care shouldn't be. We're committed to providing you with knowledge, tools, and support to navigate the challenges of motherhood. Our mission is to put moms back on the priority list and empower them to create a mental wellness toolbox free from judgment, fear, and shame. On the show, we'll be discussing topics such as postpartum depression, identity loss, the mental load of motherhood, and more. We'll be joined by experts, moms, and professionals who can offer advice, practical tips, relatable stories, and honest conversations. Here at MomWall, we believe that when a mom is well, a baby is well. So join us as we discuss the topics that matter to you with experts who get it. Together, we can redefine motherhood and change the way moms are treated. Dr. Quincy, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Really, I just ask you to come back on as an excuse to hang out because I so enjoy our time together. Thank you for being here with us. It is an absolute pleasure. This is one of my favorite things about the internet is making friends across the world. And then we just like hang out on the interwebs every once in a while. It's my favorite. I know one of these days, hopefully in real life, but that like, I'm here for and it. You're in California way and I'm here for some <laughs> sunshine and, and I'll, I'll make it happen one of these days. Please do. You are no stranger to the show. You were on episode number 79. We talked about when treatment becomes trauma and interacting with the medical system. You were on episode 94 talking about regulating our nervous system if we're like overly maybe anxious or activated. And then we also had a really interesting conversation in episode 130 about how to heal from religious trauma. And I kind of feel like today's episode is a bit of a bridge of that, but also can be backed out to like more applicable if someone hasn't grown up in a religious environment. But today we're talking like having confidence in our decision-making, I think is sort of the big picture topic of it. But before jumping in, how are you and how (laughs) is your, I know that you have been specializing and sort of niching down and working with sort of cult recovery or religious trauma specifically in your practice. So how's your practice going? How are things for you? It's going great. You know, I had kind of a weird coming to that. I have been working with religious trauma and cult recovery for a decade now, but it was never something that I talked about because I just didn't think people would relate to it. I mean, it's such like a niche thing that I was getting referrals from the community, but certainly wasn't talking about it. And then two years ago, I had a real go viral Mm. and I was talking about my own religious trauma. And so many people were like, say more about that, say more about that. And so I just started talking about it a little bit more out loud. It's still the thing that I do all day long, but it's certainly sort of transformed how I show up online and what I'm willing to talk about and how I kind of weave in my own story. That's been kind of a fun journey to talk about. So yeah, things are going great. Yeah. I know one of the things we talked about in that religious trauma episode was how having these conversations out loud can feel very uh, revealing and vulnerable because in environments that are maybe super religious or where there's a lot of control, questioning and coming out against things is so the opposite that it is like really anxiety provoking. I I can imagine that taking that leap for you must have been really difficult. Yeah, I think I have had a lot of time to kind of settle in. It really worked in my direction sort of in a positive way that I had already been having a lot of these conversations with my 
family and with my close friends. So it was a shock to absolutely no one (laughs) in my life when I sort of (laughs) came out and started talking about these things. But that's not everyone's journey. Mm. Sometimes people are finding information, especially online, on TikTok, on Instagram, and they're going, oh my gosh, that's my experience. Mm -hmm. And no one has ever labeled it that way, but that's exactly it. And then they're having to sort of look around them and be like, I will ostracize everyone around me. Everyone will have an opinion about this. I feel so connected to this concept, Mm. but my entire nervous system is telling me that it's a danger (laughs) to Mm -hmm. say something out loud or to even talk about that in a real and open way. So I think that that's my hope in showing up in these spaces is to ease those people into being able to live a little bit more authentically and in connection with their lived experience and knowing that that is a long journey for some. And for some, they just need permission, Mm -hmm. you know, and then they can kind of take it from there. So it's an interesting way that we all kind of find our way to this, like, ah, something really untoward was happening in either religious spaces or cult spaces, or even, you know, sort of in a bigger perspective, like, you know, I grew up in a really restrictive family, or Mm -hmm. there were a lot of rules around perception and community perception in my family. And that has had such a big impact. So yeah, I think we come to it in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. When we talk about decision-making, this episode was really inspired, I would say, by conversations I was having over the holidays with family members. And I come from a Christian family. My upbringing was like Pentecostal and evangelical, but I have a lot of Christians and non-denominational, like lots of people in my life that have different walks of faith. And these conversations come up around the dinner table or in these social environments often. And it really got me thinking about the things in our upbringing that impact our ability to make decisions. Because I don't know about you, but since I became a mom, I am making more decisions than I could have ever imagined in my entire life. It's exhausting. Right? Yes. (laughs) And they're high stakes. Sometimes it's like, okay, is it macaroni for dinner or chicken nuggets? It's still decision. It's still invisible load. And it's absolutely taxing and draining. But some are super high stakes. And Mm -hmm. as somebody who used to be very indecisive and very people-pleasing, making decisions with confidence was a real, real struggle for me for a time. Mm -hmm. And you touched on, I think that there's multiple layers here and and I'll, I'll share my thoughts and I'd love to hear yours where we have this like faith and religious piece where, I don't know, in my upbringing, it was a lot of like God's will or pray about it, sort of like these decisions for our lives or or big decisions that are being made are outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. But then I've also seen on the flip side of that, I want to say cultural, and I don't know if that is the correct word, but where family dynamics and the hierarchy of the family make decisions on your behalf. And Mm -hmm. so you don't necessarily learn to be empowered to make your own decisions Mm -hmm. or the thought process through which we do that. But I'm curious from your perspective, what things feed into that indecision and that inability to make confident decisions for ourselves? So let me talk a little bit about the religious part, and then I can kind of expand into the bigger cultural piece because it definitely has an impact. So one of the things that happens in religious spaces is a really delayed emotional development. Hmm. And that's typically because of two things. First of all, you're taught that your feelings are wrong. 
and that there's some sort of spiritual indication that either God is trying to teach you a lesson or you are being influenced by some evil force and you need to fight against that. So there's like whole maps of emotional experiences that are very human and very normal that you grow up hearing are really wrong Mm. and dangerous and really problematic. So one of the things that that does is it teaches you to try to separate yourself from your emotional experience. So you're kind of sectioning yourself off into these parts of yourself that do have really big emotional experiences like all kids and all humans do, but you're not allowed to attend to them. You're not allowed to listen to them because they are an evil influence Mm -hmm. in your life. They are proof that you are sinful. If you are angry, this is proof that you are somehow sinful and that you have fallen out of the will of God. That's a lot of the language that's used in these spaces. Mm. So that's one way that this happens. Another way is what we call spiritual bypassing. And that is when someone says that they're having an experience to maybe someone in a spiritual community and they're overwhelmed because they're not taught how to deal with their emotional experiences, they will jump to things like, have you prayed about this? Have you given this all to God? Mm. This is just God's will for you. God will never give you anything more than you can handle. So instead of addressing what has just been shared, like, well, that's horrifying. I'm so sorry that that happened. Or how are you holding up? Or my God, what do you need? Instead of that, it's you're doing something wrong because you're even bringing it up and you're overwhelming me. And neither of us know how to deal with the emotional experience around this lived thing that has happened. Mm. And so let me just spiritually bypass around that. Let me just remind you of what the church, the community, the cult, the group tells us to think, feel, believe about these things. And now none of us have actually processed or acknowledged our human experience. We've just moved on around it. We've just bypassed it completely. So those are two powerful ways that this stuff shows up in groups, in these sort of religious groups. It's really connecting in my mind a episode I did on toxic positivity and that the birthplace of this toxic positivity is in these religious environments where because I, as you said, I'm not emotionally equipped to handle somebody's pain. Like, I don't know. And this was me as a young adult. Like, let me pray for you. Have you prayed about like, that was me, right? Totally. And unequipped, I want to say coming from a place of wanting to help, but not knowing how, and then really minimizing or dismissing the person as a result. So the example that I use in that episode, and that's coming to mind for me even now, is I was watching the Kardashians <laughs> and Chloe was talking about, these are my examples. It's I love it. Ridiculous. But, You're speaking my language. And Chloe was talking about that, you know, she just found out that Tristan had cheated, but she's got this baby, mm. you know, via surrogacy happening in the background. And she's having a heck of a time trying mm-hmm. to reconcile what has just happened to her life, mm-hmm. right? And what's going to happen when the public finds out that she's got a baby on the way with this man who has just humiliated her in public. And the family is like, oh, everything happens for a reason. And God wouldn't give you more than you could handle. And you're so strong. And all of these things that did not at all allow space for her to just have a moment, right? you know? 
And so that spiritual bypassing, I feel like there's a connection there with that toxic positivity. Would you say they're related or similar? Very. Yeah. Very. It can move into the like positive way. Like God has a plan for you. Mm. God won't give you anything that you can't handle. But it can also go into the negative. Like you're being taught a lesson here. Okay. Yes. Are you listening to what God is trying to teach you? God orchestrates all things for our continued relationship with God, right? So essentially you're suggesting that God orchestrates our suffering in order to, you know, move us towards him if we're gendering God. Mm. So I have a couple of pushbacks to this that I think are really kind of helpful to think about. Number one is spiritual bypassing One of the ways that it happens is through what we would call thought terminating cliches. This was a concept that was created by Robert Lifton way back. Uh, And the thought is, or the concept is that as a group, whether it's a culture, a religious group, or a cult group, we create a language that indicates certain things. So indicates in-group versus out-group. You're a part of the in-group because you know how to speak like a Mormon, right? Mm. You're part of the out-group because you're going, what? What's that language? What's that term you just said, right? So you're outside of Scientology because you don't know all of their acronyms, right? Like this is how we sort of indicate to the outside world that we're a part of the in-group or the out-group without having to wear t-shirts, right? That kind of say it all the time. Part of that language that's created in these groups is a thought-terminating cliche, And essentially, that is a cliche that we use, that the group uses, to stop any further consideration. So when someone is sitting in front of you and they're sharing a trauma, they're sharing a really like hard emotional experience, they're sharing postpartum depression, right? Like they are sharing something that is really hard on them. And someone says, God will never give you any more than you can handle, What shall a person say to that? You can't say in the group and still be accepted by the group. Well, God is. Mm. So your option is to internalize that as I'm not trusting God enough or God is giving me this so that I will learn a lesson. This is important for me to be a good mom, to be a good servant, to be a good person out there in the world. Mm -hmm. And so that cliche has stopped all thought, Mm. all like deeper consideration of what might be going on here. And cult groups, religious groups, cultural groups are full of thought terminating cliches where we all have a history behind that cliche that stops all consideration or all further argument. Unless of course, you're going to sort of solidly put yourself outside the group. Mm. I'm identifying myself as an outsider because I'm going to argue with you over this point, right? And most people that are in a vulnerable position don't want to be a part of the out group. They're coming to the group for support. Mm -hmm. They're coming to be a part of the in group there, right? Yeah. And so spiritual bypassing is often coming through thought terminating cliches or toxic positivity. You're not thinking about this in the right way. Your emotions are the problem. If you could just feel better, it will become better. Yeah. Right? That's kind of the underlying suggestion that's going on in these spaces. This is so fascinating to me because I don't know why decision-making is so rooted in these things, but I knew that it was. For me personally, that it was. 
But when you're talking about these thought-stopping cliches, essentially what we're doing is shutting down any form of critical thinking or problem solving. That's right. Right? That's right. Enter decisions are critical thinking (laughs) and problem solving, right? So if we've been told, you know, give it to God or pray about it or, I don't know, all these various things, then I've never sat down and thought, what are the pros and cons of making this decision for myself? Right. Or like, how do I, you know, think my way through X, Y, and Z? Like, it just doesn't go to that next skill or step because it's just like, I clearly need to go and pray about it more. or I need to just listen to my parents. Mm -hmm. When we talk about these thought-stopping cliches in the realm of like a cultural context, do you have any examples there or thoughts there that people might hear or say? One of them that I think is meant to show acceptance, but I think it actually operates quite differently out there in the world is the saying, it is what it is. Hmm accept it. There's nothing you can do about it. Move on. Why are we talking about it? And you'll hear people kind of say that to themselves. They're sharing a story. It's painful. They're trying to connect with their friends. They're trying to manage their friends overwhelm, right? Mm. In these conversations and they'll quickly kind of slip in. It is what it is. And that relieves everyone around the table from having to consider, well, what structural injustices went into this? (laughs) What influenced this? How did this have an impact on you? What can be done? What do you need as far as support? Now, maybe some friend groups are healthy enough that they're able to kind of get around that, right? And they're able to press in and keep asking those questions. But I hear that a lot. It is what it is. And, you know, I want to ask the question, what is it exactly? Mm. What is it that's going on here? What has happened to you? And what do you need in order to, you know, be able to make sense of that experience and move on? Hmm. Yeah. If we put it in the context of like culture and society around motherhood, even, I think that it's like, you know, this is your role or this Mm -hmm. is what motherhood is Mm -hmm. or things that just assign the struggle to the role without any further investigation or Mm -hmm. or questioning. And Mm -hmm. that logic and that mindset, it prevents all forms of help seeking behavior because it's like, I didn't know that this is what I signed up for, but apparently I just need to suck it up and keep moving. Yeah. And I think we're missing it, right? We're missing in those conversations is where someone is able to work out for themselves what they might need to do next. And they're able to get some encouragement around like, I think that that's great that that's what you want to do next. Or that makes a lot of sense to me that that's how you would try to protect yourself in the future. Or have you thought about this? Because that happened to me and this is what I did. And I felt a whole lot better. I mean, Talk about decision-making. It's absolutely stopped Mm. in a situation where there's just sort of like a cultural understanding that this should be happening or it's a part of it. So buck up, Mm. soldier, Mm -hmm. right? Like that sort of mentality, I think, keeps people from being able to sit with their confidants, with their close relationships and be able to work through what decision, what next right step is in front of them. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I'll take this like one more step and then we can maybe talk about like the locus of control and where it sits yeah. and how we can adjust that. But I'm in a interracial marriage and I have a very diverse friend group. So I see this come out in all different kinds of ways, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's an elder who in the family who is or even just in in your culture who is 
saying this to you and and how you respond and mm-hmm. and whether I don't know, like, like that's black people shit or that's white people shit. Like mm-hmm. when it comes to like mental health and uh-huh. seeking mental health care, or when it comes to LGBTQ community, there are a certain set of norms and expectations that go along with different cultures, societies, you know, even like races and ethnicities potentially that again, have those stopping mm-hmm. sentences or norms about them. Hey. Yeah. And I, I think that those have been ways in which we've protected ourselves from overwhelm, Mm. right? Like the norms are created around, they have a function. And so I know that they had a function when I was using them. I had no emotional equipment (laughs) to be able to sit with someone's pain because no one had taught me how to sit with mine or with anyone else's, right? They had cliched me to death. And so here I was doing the same thing because I thought that that was a norm. And so I have a lot of compassion for these ways in which it comes out, I often don't feel like it's got malintent connected to it, but it has horrid impact Mm -hmm. on sort of a generational way in which we are learning to live with the human experience. And so I'm in an interracial partnership as well. And that comes up all the time. And we're constantly kind of talking about what I have permission to do, what he doesn't have permission to do, or what he does have permission to do. Mm. And we're kind of talking about those things. And a lot of them kind of resonate on an emotional level. What are you allowed to feel? What am I allowed to feel according to the groups and the religions that we grew up in? Mm-hmm. And he grew up as a Jehovah's Witness. So interesting. There's a whole other ball of yarn there that we're constantly untangling together. So, yeah, these rule books and these ideas and concepts that we bring to the table around parenthood and sexuality and relationships, norms within the home, like these rules have been written for us, you mm-hmm. know, subconsciously places, and it can be a lot to untangle. Okay, so people are listening and they're resonating with the fact that, wait a minute, wait wait just a freaking minute here. <laughs> a lot of these decisions, you know, as, like maybe especially growing up or as a child and young adult were made for me. And I like, maybe I didn't learn this skill. Mm-hmm. I think that before we get into the skills, actually, it's really important to set the locus of control understanding. Can we go there? Sure. So we have a concept out there in the psychological world of a locus of control. Where is your control centered? And if you could just imagine that it's along some sort of spectrum, a lot of people, specifically in religious worlds, will find themselves on the spectrum way on the one end towards external locus of control, which means that things happen to you because of outside influences, Mm. that the things that are going on are actually controlled by something outside of yourself, like a deity, God, evil forces even, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of this uh, heaven, hell, larger realm that's going on beyond our understanding, beyond our knowledge. The universe, the energy, like I feel like there can be lots lots of different terms for this. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Even the stars, astrology, like that's an external locus of control. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And then if we're moving towards the other end of the spectrum, that's the internal locus of control which means that you pay very little attention to what's going on outside of you. And you're really just worried about what you can do to control. Now, Mm. if someone is really on that end of the spectrum, they have their own set of vulnerabilities, such as eating disorders, things that really put some sort of control specifically on 
the person that is standing there, Mm. right? So what we really want overall is a relatively balanced understanding of where the locus of control is. But recent research has really sort of pushed us towards, we want it balanced, we want it somewhere in the middle, but leaning towards internal. Yeah. Because we want to be able to look around us and say there's societal things that are going on, there's laws, there's history, there's group norms, there's a lot, there's religious groups. Maybe if you believe in this, there is some sort of supernatural power out there. And so there are things that are going on around us that we quite literally do not get to sit in Congress and, you know, like bang our gavels and say, this is how things are going to go for my life. This is the taxes I'm going to pay. This is what's going to happen. This is what, you know, a job security is going to look like. There's just so much that is outside of our control. And so we need to be able to see that. Mm -hmm. But on an individual psychological level, we really need to be able to understand ourselves, what's going on in ourselves, and be able to take accountability for the ways that we have participated in something, whether we knew about it or not, Mm -hmm. that we have participated in something that has had some sort of impact, positive or negative. And so we want to be middle, like middle of the ground, but leaning towards internal because those that have an internal locus of control or they're leaning in that direction tend to have better outcomes. They tend to understand that when your body feels really dysregulated, you can do something about it. Mm. When your life feels really terrible, you don't have to just sort of accept that there are some sort of norms out there in the world that women have to live by in motherhood you can actually change it. Mm -hmm. Now you might have to push up against some things and you might have to advocate for yourself in a different way, but you don't have to be miserable. You can do something about that in your marriage. You can do something about that in your partnerships and whatever that looks like. And so really we want someone to be in that space Mm -hmm. where they can understand what's going on inside of them, take some accountability for what they've participated in, They can feel good about making some decisions for themselves. They feel powerful in that. Like whatever decision I make is the right one to make. Mm. Like there might not be some ultimate right out there. It's just the decision that I make based on the information that I have at that time. And even if it all goes to hell in a handbasket, I trust myself to figure it out. Yeah. Right. That's where we want people to be in that space. It's the I trust myself piece, right? Like this is where the confidence starts to come in. And what really sparked this whole conversation was I had a family member. It was like ages ago when my son was little and he was looking for his lovey. He had lost, he had lost his lovey in the house somewhere. We knew it was here. And it was like, oh, like, let's pray and ask God like where it is so we can find it. Hmm. And I was like, the F? Why doesn't he just (laughs) retrace his steps and go like, you know, logically think through where he had his lovey last and go look for it. And so when we're talking about like a division of responsibility in a situation or this like locus of control, it has taken me a really long time to understand what is mine to control and what is not. And what is my responsibility to do and show up, Mm -hmm. you know, in a situation and, and how I should do that. Versus what I need to learn to let go of. Mm -hmm. Because in the religious environment that I was in, at least I can't speak for everybody's experience, everything was so external that it felt like a chaotic free fall all of the time. Yes. Right? 
on the flip side of that, there's also something very avoidant and almost freeing about not having to take any responsibility. Totally. Totally. Right? And so finding that middle ground took some real trial and error for me. An example of this personally, like unrelated to motherhood, was like when I would prepare for like a school exam or something like that. And there was a time when I would be like, oh, like, you know, just God help me remember these things like via what? Like osmosis, translate all of this information (laughs) into my brain, Right. right? Right. Versus putting in the work, knowing what my responsibility was to attend my classes, to do the work and show up and sit there on an exam day and say, you know what? I may not get perfect, but I was at every class Mm -hmm. or maybe I only missed one and I got catch-up notes and I read the majority of the material Mm -hmm. and I trust my brain to recall what I've learned because I know that I understand And so even if I don't get 100%, I know that I can pass this test right now. Right. Right? And like maybe leading up to that, I'm like, please, God, don't let this whole household get sick because like there are things that are outside of our control even still in that situation. Totally. But I know what the responsibility is for me and what is sort of outside of myself. And that is really freaking hard to get to that place. It totally is. I've had my own experience of that. I've talked about this kind of publicly in other spaces, but my partner and I, we've been through the ringer when it comes to fertility. Mm. And it has been so interesting to watch myself sort of feel like, you know, am I being taught a lesson? Mm. And then I'll have to catch myself, right? Or like praying, kind of praying, like in my new version on the way to the doctor's office to get news instead of just being sort of present in the experience Mm -hmm. and helping myself in that way or comforting myself in that way. Like you're anxious right now. That makes a lot of sense. You've been through a lot. Makes so much sense. Yeah. For me, it's whenever I go to that space, that old space that I used to have to go to all of the time, I'm trying to comfort myself in an old way Mm -hmm. and it never worked right? It never felt right. So for me, it's sort of switching into that more present focused. Can I be, if it's, if we're talking about tests, can I just be present enough with the material that it makes so much sense that I can reason my way through the rest of the test? Mm. If I only get this part, because I'm just paying attention, I'm not praying about it frantically. I'm not worried about shoving it all in my head or worrying about some sort of osmosis. I remember that feeling so well. (laughs) If I could just be present with this concept, can my brain then make sense of other questions that I might not have like the actual answer to, but I can reason through it, Mm -hmm. right? Like that was a big shift for me. And can I just be present to take in this moment? For me, my religious life was so dissociative. Mm-hmm. I was in such a freeze response or flight response, both of those, where yeah. I was totally trying to just avoid emotional experiences, avoid any sort of hardship, because I didn't want that to prove that God was somehow mad at me or mm-hmm. teaching me some sort of lesson. And the community was watching, mm-hmm. right? They were sort of looking at that and whether they said it or not, they were judging me harshly for what they perceived to be going on in my life. And I just, I missed so much of my life. Mm -hmm. I really did. I missed so much of that present moment of just trying to figure out what do I need? What's going on right now? 
How can I be present in this? How can I soak in as much as I can in this moment, whether that's a test or even a social moment? Like, how can I just sort of soak this in in a way that allows me to use that in a future moment? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the reason I keep kind of speaking up about this stuff because I think people are missing their whole lives. Mm. They're just passing them by because we have to be so dissociated. If your whole life is thought terminating cliches and spiritual bypassing and toxic positivity and an external locus of control, you are not living your life. Yeah. And that's so sad to me. You're trying so hard to avoid the discomfort that you're experiencing, that you can never be present in your body and in the moment that you're in. Absolutely. This is connecting in my mind to a couple of like postpartum and sort of perinatal things that come up. Like one, we're talking about like this test taking and sort of knowing what to do and then feeling like we're not going to remember it. I hear this experience from moms who have premature babies in the NICU Mm -hmm. who have maybe been under monitoring and under like doctor supervision. And sure enough, they've been there and they've cared for the baby day in and day out. I'm sure in many cases, there is also a traumatic experience here and like heightened arousal, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so there's multiple layers here. But then getting home, hypervigilance, likely from a traumatic experience, but also feeling like they have no confidence in their ability to care for this baby. There are no monitors now. Mm -hmm. There's no certainty anymore. There's no doctor telling me or, you know, maybe nurses weighing baby every so often and, and things like that. And being able to be in our body and say... I can see the amount of formula in the bottle or maybe like Mm -hmm. I'm pumping or I can feel even if I'm nursing, Mm -hmm. you know, a full breast versus an empty breast and being able to like be in that moment and talk our way through it, I feel like is a big one that comes up. And another one is intrusive thoughts, Mm -hmm. like grotesque or really alarming intrusive thoughts that maybe we hadn't experienced before about accidental harm coming to self, baby, partner, other children, or up to 50% of moms experience intrusive thoughts about intentionally causing harm to their child or their partner or whoever. I know. So if we have got this world's view of thoughts come at us externally, mm-hmm. I will be the devil if I think that, yes. you, do you know what I'm saying? Totally. It's, it's really, yeah, it's, it's really challenging. To go back to your NICU example, uh, one of my best friends is a NICU nurse Mm. and she had the healthiest babies until the last one. And then she was a mom on the NICU unit and also a nurse. So she knew what the nurses were doing, Mm -hmm. but the overwhelming panic that she felt when her baby was getting better and he was about to come home. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I know, I mean, there's machines that tell me when this child needs something, like if yeah. it's an emergency and I'm about to take him home without any machines. And because she was friends with the people on the unit, there was one particular nurse that kind of took on a role of teaching her mm-hmm. like what she needed to do and doing things like, okay, so just take this in. You're standing over the crib. What do you notice? right? Like, let's have a day where he's not hooked up to all of these things because he's getting ready for that anyway. 
And so what do you notice? What do you need to look for? And she taught her like the other part of the sort of caring for a vulnerable child in that way. And I think about that story a lot when it comes to thinking about adults that come to me with a lot of religious trauma and they have a lot of feelings and they think that they are literally evil for having these feelings. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of that they missed all of that process growing up of having someone just sort of stand in front of what's going on with them and be like, what do you think? What do you notice? Right. Okay. And what do you want to do about that? Okay. I think that's a great idea. Let's go. I'm with you. Keep keep going. Keep doing that. I think that that was like such a beautiful picture of what I long for in emotional development Mm -hmm. for so many people is that like, I'm standing here, I'm supporting you, but you've got this. Mm -hmm. And that's a healthy part of development is the growing independence, right? Mm -hmm. In emotional development is like, I'm here, I'm scaffolding you, I'm holding you along the way. I'm not going to let anything terrible happen, but you try it a little right? and I'll be here with you. Okay. I think that's a good idea. Let's try it out. Even if parent knows that it's a mistake, Mm -hmm. like let them try it out. You're there to hold them in that, right? Right. Okay, that one didn't work out. Let's go back. Now, what do you want to do? Now that you know that, like that is emotional scaffolding. Yeah. And that is something that so many of us are not getting. Yeah, the idea of like, my son has the bravery to attempt the monkey bars when he knows that I'm there to catch him, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Like, He's probably not entirely capable yet, but he will gain confidence through trying. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is where it is so important for us to like make this connection is that we build our confidence by trying and learning and failing and trying again and feeling supported throughout the process. But when our decisions or sort of path or how we should do things has been prescribed to us, has been sort of set it and forget it on these systems in the NICU and sort of we've just tried to keep this baseline. And then all of a sudden we're like, wait, what is the baseline and how do I create it for myself? And like, I remember when I was a young adult and I moved out with my husband and was like, what do you mean I can make all these decisions for Mm -hmm. myself? I didn't even know what to do, like how Mm -hmm. to make some of the like most basic of decisions. Mm -hmm. And so can we talk a little bit about, I know we got to wrap up, but I think it's so important (laughs) how we practically now start to wet our feet with this, because we know like, you know, we're indecisive or maybe we struggle with confidence in our own parenting choices and we want more confidence. And what are some of the first steps towards making these decisions for ourselves with confidence? So number one is to slow down, Hmm. slow way, 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 way down (laughs) and just look around you, right? If there's a decision and you're sort of being confronted with it and it can be a really little decision around like, what are we going to do for dinner? And you're carting the kids around and you're a little bit overwhelmed and nothing seems like a good idea and everything kind of has its negatives, right? Just slow down and take a deep breath. And realize that actually most of our decisions are inconsequential. Hmm. It doesn't matter if you have chicken nuggets or macaroni and cheese. Yeah. It fundamentally does not matter. Yes, maybe there can be a, a New Year's goal at some point where you're wanting to sort of shift into chef mode, but that's <laughs> not where you are tonight on baseball night. So, right. so just to understand that most 
decisions, when we're learning how to make them, think back to what a seven-year-old feels like. They feel like it's the end of the world if they make the wrong one, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's scary and they don't know what they're doing and they don't know if this is the right thing. And so you're feeling that, right? When you're learning how to make decisions. So just slow down and realize that most things don't matter Mm -hmm. and we're totally torturing ourselves over it and they don't matter. You are in the early stages of mastering this skill And so some of those things you're just going to have to accept and try not to consider too deeply because they don't matter. Chicken nuggets don't matter. Yeah. (laughs) I'm writing about the invisible load right now. And one of the things that this is really bringing up for me, we talk about is becoming paralyzed with research Mm -hmm. and the decision-making with all the gear and all the choices we have to make and all the research and the review reading and the, you know, invisible mental energy that goes into this when really... There is a set of safety laws that would not allow this thing to be on the shelf if it wasn't safe for your child. Right. So like there literally is not a wrong choice. Like right. when it comes to whether it's design of car seats or various, like we're, we're splitting hairs now, like mm-hmm. it does the function. It does it well. It does it safely because it wouldn't be on the market or in our stores likely if it didn't. So Exactly what you're saying is like not every small decision is high stakes. Right. And it feels like that because you're learning it. Yeah. So I remember when I first started my business, everything felt like high stakes. And the truth was like, you know, you make a decision around a payroll administer or administrative and then you don't like them. So you change it. Yeah. Like, okay. It took like three extra hours of work because you had to transfer all the data, but like nothing fell apart. Both of them were sufficient. One actually worked better for you. And you could not have known that until you signed up and you went through the process and you were like, this is hot garbage and I need to move on. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I find that that happens a lot for folks kind of in that panicky, frightened stage of like everything has sort of a a huge eternal consequence. Mm. And part of the work is just to sort of pull back on that. Like, this is not heaven or hell sort of decision-making. This is friendship, right? But everything was high stakes in the religion. The people that you hung out with could influence you negatively. The music that you listened to could totally make you a sex-crazed maniac. Mm. The TV shows that you watched, the devil was going to influence you in that way. Like, everything was high stakes instead of, Right. Maybe this is not a heaven or a hell sort of decision. (laughs) Like, let's save that for moments when you have the ability to, like, really help someone in a jam. Mm. Like, save your heaven and hell for them, right? And this is just dinner or this is just Netflix. The lovey. Like, like the lovey is not, like, a reflection of our faith in God. It's literally, like, something that we left in our bedroom that we need to go back and get, right? Like, that's why I think we struggle with some of these really small stakes decisions because I'm like, it's a lovey. Like I remember feeling so like dumbfounded in that moment and it mm-hmm. spoke to my perception shift and the growth that I had had that I could see that so, so differently now Yeah, that I was like, his faith in God has nothing to do with his lovey. Right. Like th- these are couldn't be further, you know, in terms of level of stakes and level of importance. Totally. So... 
Yeah. Sometimes it is just a lovey, right? Sometimes it is just retrace our steps. Right. And I think, you know, if we're thinking about decision-making power, we're limited. It's a muscle and you can't do a thousand bicep curls a day, Yeah. right? You can maybe, maybe do 50, maybe do a hundred. But if you're wearing out that muscle in these really small decisions, Mm. then you don't have sort of the capacity to make those bigger decisions. Maybe when you're sitting down with your partner at the end of the evening and you're talking about your kid that's having a really hard time with something and the two of you need to come up with some sort of plan to help them feel like really supported and scaffolded. Mm -hmm. You're zapped. Yeah. And so what's your temptation going to be? Well, it's going to be to fall back into things like spiritual bypassing or fall back into things like thought terminating cliches or toxic positivity Mm. when really this is it. Like this is game time. This is where it matters. This is where it actually matters. Yeah. And then I remember this is how my brain works. Like I remember needing to like really write things down. I remember like needing to like see the pros and cons visually. Mm -hmm. And when they were maybe on par with each other, understanding that in order to make a decision, I won't have 100% of the information all of the time, rarely ever actually. So Mm -hmm. I have 60%, you know, lean this way. And I know I can pivot. I trust in my ability to pivot if I need to. Mm -hmm. And this is the direction that I'm going to go in. And it took a lot of time to get there. But I think that if you're like a writer for processing Mm -hmm. or like a visual understanding the pros and cons or what you can control or what you can't control, maybe writing some of these things out so you can really externalize them a little bit could be helpful as well. Yeah. And be creative in that way. Mm -hmm. For instance, I realized that money really helps me understand. So if I can see how much things are going to cost and then I start looking like maybe baby gear, of course I want like you know, the Bentley looking thing. Right. But really when I start putting money to it, it's a sobering thing. It's like, I don't love it that much. Mm-hmm. Or, and that's my personal thing, right? And my partner has a different way of managing that. He wants it to be quick and efficient and not take up a bunch of room. Okay, great. Like that's a great yeah. thing. And I honor that. One of the ways in which I think can be really, really helpful in starting to feel more confident in your decision is honoring other people's decisions. Oh, that's a, ooh, <laughs> that one hits different. Do you know how much people struggle with that? Like totally honoring other people's decisions for their own life, over their own bodies, mm-hmm. over the own way that they parent their own children, mm-hmm. over the values that they choose for themselves, though they don't reflect your values. That is freaking hard for people. It is. Well, because we need a right and a wrong. Mm. We need like, if this is so solidly right, and I believe in that, and that's the only reason that I'm making this decision is because I've been told that it's the right decision, then everyone else is wrong. And it's my job to save them and bring them over into the right category. Convince them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I think this can also happen in partnerships too, right? Like we take on the load when we think that we're the only ones that can make the good decisions. Okay. And so like part of my letting go is like the kitchen, like the way in which breakfast happens in our house. If I am not in charge of that, if I am not out there sort of managing it, people are still going to eat and the kitchen will get cleaned. Mm -hmm. It might look like a disaster in the middle of it. And that brings me personal anxiety. But what do I care? I'm not in charge of that. I need to go use my decision-making power somewhere else. 
Mm -hmm. right? I need to be the one that's like doing something else because we have divided that labor and he's doing one thing. And if I'm managing him, I'm also going to be managing him and myself. And I just need to trust that his decisions are best. I think one of the ways in which I have totally let go of this is I don't care what my kids eat. Mm -hmm. That triggers so many people, right? Because I grew up in a family that was like kind of managed food and they really needed it to be healthy. And we really thought that that was good for brain development. And Mm. no one's brain develops well when mom is stressed out and haggard and worried about the organic food. Right. So my friends have space for that. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I don't care what my kids eat. (laughs) Yeah. And I just had to like, let that go. Like literally let it go. I don't care. Mm -hmm. I, you know, like let's, keep dessert till the end of the day, but I don't care. (laughs) It is so like, I've never made this connection before. And it's like blowing my mind right now. Our ability to trust in our own autonomy and decision-making for ourselves, and like how we trust others' ability to make their decisions for themselves is so directly related that I didn't see that before. Mm -hmm. And so when you're talking about like, I gave over like meal planning and cooking to my husband And it was like, if I would do it, it would be obsessive and it would be Mm -hmm. perfectionist Mm -hmm. and it would consume all my mind. And it's easier for me to just let him do it and just not overthink it. There are areas that I have some work to do (laughs) when it comes to big emotions in the home. I have a very hard time letting my partner Mm -hmm. manage those. I'm a freaking therapist. Mm -hmm. Like it's really like, I feel like I'm the best suited for that role. And I have a hard time with that. But there are other ways, like I don't have to start with that one. That's the highest stakes on my list. So I can start with the ones that aren't so anxiety provoking to me. Totally. Right. And that started with like pickups and drop offs Mm -hmm. and like certain things that I could trust, let him do it, see, it didn't go off like I would do it, but it went well and I could finish my meeting and, you know, things were functioning. And then it's kind of like, it's just really helped to build that trust and confidence in myself too. Like I I can see, I can see that connection there. Well, I mean, I think what we're doing is we're doing that delayed emotional development work, right? Mm. We're sort of letting someone go out there and do the thing that we've hypermanaged. And we're saying, go do your thing. And I trust you to learn the lessons, to figure it out. If it goes terribly, you've got a wallet to fix it in the same way I have a wallet to fix, right? Like you're going to do generally the same things that any other adult would do to fix that issue. Mm -hmm. So you've got to go out there and learn how to do it in the same way that I would want, you know, my 11 year old to go out there and learn how to manage his big feelings on the basketball court. Right. When he doesn't make that shot. (laughs) like It's that same thing, right? I can't control all of that and then expect that these are going to be healthy individuals that walk out in the world and perpetuate you know, human health. I can't expect that. Mm. I'm just another version of the religion that I grew up in, mm-hmm. which said, nobody else feel in this room, I'll manage it. Nobody else hold anything, I'll manage it. And so now I am the controlling aspect that, you know, I was trying to get away from in my religion. Yeah. And the real model here, at least from my background, being that like people don't know they're lost. Mm-hmm not trusting in others and their own ability to make decisions for themselves and that right versus wrong really taught me personally to not trust others 
decision-making or maybe intuition or decisions for themselves for a really long time. Mm -hmm. So that opens my mind up a lot to make that connection. And so even there, learning to trust in your partner, if you have one in the home and just let something sit with them. And it could be low stakes. It's, it, it should totally. start with low stakes at first mm -hmm. and just see how it goes. And another piece of this is it's going to take time for them. If they are the rookie mm -hmm. on the field and you have been in that role and playing that position for X, Y, Z months, years, it's going to be like a little like Bambi on ice at first. It's going to take a minute. Totally. And they're going to have better ideas than you had at least 50% of the time. And that has to be okay too. Until they have to cross all of the yeah, ones off the totally. list. Yeah. <laughs> As they're learning, they're going to come up with things that like you didn't come up with. Yeah. And that's the beauty of partnership. That's why you're not doing it alone. That's why, you know, they're there to do the lifting too. Yeah. I really have moments where I'm like, oh my God, I never would have considered doing that. I wouldn't have even known that that was an option. Mm -hmm. He knew it was an option because that's what he does with his free time. Yeah. I never would have known. So, you know, those sort of things that I think is just a reminder that when we grow up in groups that tell us that we have to be all knowing in order to avoid some terrible outcome, mm. we take that into our adult lives and we think that we have to be all knowing or there's going to be terrible outcomes. Yeah. And that is fundamentally not true. Yeah. And I hope that that really resonates with people, you know, as they listen now, like we spend so much time worried as moms and anxious, trying to protect our children, trying to do no harm, trying to outrun some perceived harm that we might have. And knowing that we can make decisions with the information that we have. And if it's not going well, we can pivot and make new decisions. Yeah. And that's okay. And it's actually normal. And it's a part of being human. Totally. Gosh, I could talk to you all day long about this. Thank you <laughs> so much for coming back and joining us. Where can yes. people learn more from you? Where can they find you? I spend most of my time on Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Quincy, D-R-Q-U-I-N-C-E-E. -E. And I teach people how to get out of cults and rigid religions. And I also teach therapists how to treat that mm. really gnarly group of <laughs> symptoms. And you can find that at traumastery.com. So it's like monastery, but trauma. So traumastery.com. Yeah. And we'll make sure to link all of your stuff on social and in the show notes in the episode description here. And as always, I love having you on. Thank you for joining us today. Every time we DM or text, I'm like, oh gosh, let's talk again. Yeah. Let's <laughs> connect again. So I really, I love this. I love every minute of it. Thank you. Honestly, isn't Dr. Quincy so great? This is one of the things I love the most about my job is getting to meet such cool professionals who really have an impact on not only you as listeners in the audience, but also on me and my life through the knowledge and expertise they bring and they share. If this episode really resonated with you and you find that you lack confidence in your decision-making or you're indecisive and you constantly question yourself and go back on the decisions that you've set, Therapy can be a great way to work this through and gain confidence in your decision-making. To book a free 15-minute virtual consultation with one of our mom therapists, head to momwell.com slash booking. That's momwell.com slash booking. I'll see you right back here, same time, same place next week, where we are being joined by 
mindful MFT Vienna Theron to help us understand why becoming parents brings us right back into our past. This was such a real and vulnerable open conversation. You do not want to miss it. I'll see you right back here next week. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for resources or links from today's show, or you need a refresh on anything we've talked about, visit our show notes. You can find the link in the episode description, or you can head directly to momwell.com slash learning center. To join the MomWell email list and be the first one to know about new episode drops, insider info, or freebies, head to momwell.com slash newsletter. Join me next week. Until then, remember that you have to be well to mom well.